Welcome. Uh, I think I came to this city almost 20 years ago, which feels weird because I don't feel that old, um, but uh, have grown to love this place over time and hope you do too if you're new to it. And, uh, and we started this church about coming up on 13 years ago and have gone through a lot of ups and downs. And, uh, you know, I think when Jackie was speaking, I was thinking about just what I think our concept of the Christian journey looks like sometimes. And then kind of like what I think our concept of planting a church and watching it prosper over time looks like. And oftentimes the, the reality is very different from what you, <laughs> what you think it's going to look like. And I'd say that's been true in our church plant with ups and downs and refinement over time and still figuring things out as well as uh, our individual journeys. But we welcome you to come and join us on this crazy journey of following Jesus if you want to in the city and, uh, and hope you get to know us over time. I have been preaching through the book of Matthew for the last, I think it's three years or coming up on three years now. Um, you're, you're hearing chuckles because I thought it was going to be a year journey through the book of Matthew. Uh, yeah, it's, there's 28 chapters and it's a good book. I don't know if you knew that, but there's a lot in there. It's kind of dense. So, uh, so yeah, we are in chapter 26 this week and I'm going to jump back in on our journey book, through the book of Matthew. So if you want to turn there. In your Bible, please join me. One of the things that, uh, just to catch everybody up and get everybody on the same page, one of the things that I talked about last time we were talking about Matthew was it was the, the scene of the sermon, uh, I'm sorry, it was the scene of the, the Last Supper. So Jesus and his 12 disciples are sitting around this table, reclining, feasting, and remembering back to a time of salvation when God released people from the land of Egypt. Uh, his, his people from the land of Egypt, from bondage, from slavery, uh, into a land of their own. And they're sitting there remembering this feast after many, 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 many years have passed. And he's sitting around with his people, and at the end, he gets real serious with them, and he says, this is my body broken for you. And he breaks the bread, and he says, this is my blood shed for you. And he makes a new covenant with them. He makes a new commitment with them in that moment. And he lets them in on what he's doing in history. He's redefining the relationship between God and people in this moment. And they have this really special moment where Jesus and his 12 sit around and, and have this moment. And then at the end, he says to them, by the way, I'm going to die a brutal death. And that's, that's impending. That's coming soon. So that's where you're catching us in the story, coming right out of, out of that moment that Jesus has with his disciples. Now, the last time I spoke on this, very few of you will probably remember this, but I mentioned that the, the, the exiting verse of that passage really struck me the last time I was reading this in a weird way. You know how sometimes you're reading your Bible and then a verse that's always been there, you're like, has that verse always been there? Because I've never noticed that before. The verse was uh, something like this. Uh, they sang a hymn together, and then they left. And I was thinking to myself, why does that they sang a hymn together thing stand out to be so much in this particular time reading through? Well, uh, after service last week, Mickey, one of our members, I don't think, I haven't seen him here today, but Mickey, one of our members, comes up, and he's a fellow Bible dork, and he's like, hey, do you know why that's so special? And I'm like, no, or else I would have preached on it. You know? and, and he starts to tell me, that the name Yeshua is used 18 times, I'm sorry, is used three times in Psalm 118. 
And because of where they were in the Passover feast and the cadence of reading through different, actually singing through different hymns, they would have been at Psalm 118. And when you go in there and you read Psalm 118, every time salvation is mentioned, salvation is the translated word from Hebrew, Yeshua, the name of Jesus. And so they have this moment talking about how Jesus is going to be the salvation of the world. He shares his plan with his disciples, and they all sing together. And as they're singing through this psalm, or in, in this psalm, part of what they're singing is the word Yeshua. Pretty cool. You guys aren't, like, the response is not. That was like, whatever. Okay, hopefully it's getting better from here. I can't prom- promise that. That was like my opening punch, but okay. So Matthew 26, we're moving on. Thanks for encouraging me so early. Verse 30 in Matthew 26 says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen... I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I will never, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now, You have to realize, they have been life on life every day together for three years. They've given up a lot to follow Jesus. A lot. So they've left their families at home. They're out kind of walking over all over the place. No real home to speak of. Now, it's an amazing life because they're following Jesus, seeing miracles, learning teachings about the kingdom and who God is. But they've given up a lot, and it's been three years. So to have Jesus come and say this to them at this moment, hey, you're all just going to basically coward us out and, you know, leave, leave me alone, that would really cut deep to these guys. And so Peter, God bless his soul, is always the first one to step up and say, you know, whatever's kind of, he's like a stream of consciousness. There's no, fil- like the rest of us have a filter, or most of us do. Peter doesn't have that filter. He just speaks what's going on uh, before he realizes it's going on. So he says, even if all these other people that are standing around, even if all these guys, even if all of them disown you, I will never, Lord. And so Jesus calls him out and says, actually, for you in particular, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Thanks for speaking up once again. Okay, so then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Go a little farther. Going on a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, Father, if it is not, po- if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So then he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So before you get too down on the three, Peter, James, and John, remember that they had come out of a huge feast with roasted lamb and wine. They're probably, you know, slipping into the night of hanging out with Jesus, reclining at the table, and uh, they're all filled with good food. We can all relate to that. And so I love this part where it says their eyes were heavy. You know, it's like, I know exactly what that feels like. You're watching a movie, and you really want to stay up for it, and you're like nodding off, and you catch yourself every once in a while. So that's this moment where Jesus says, okay, I'm in a bad place. I'm in a really bad place. Now, think about this. You've been walking around for Jesus for three years. He has overcome storms. He's overcome death. He's overcome, meaning raising people from the dead. He's overcome leprosy. He's overcome shortages of food. What hasn't he—demons? What hasn't he overcome at this point? So to catch him in a place where he's saying to his disciples, I'm overwhelmed with grief even to the point of death, that must have been weird for them. It must have been a shift for them, or it must have been a moment for them. They were like, whoa, I'm not—I don't know that I know this Jesus— maybe. Or, or it must have felt like there was some gravity to it, because it didn't seem like from reading the biographies of Jesus that he oftentimes had one of these moments where he truly felt overwhelmed. And so he's having one of these moments. He's already told his disciples that they're going to betray him. And now what he's doing is he's asking them to watch and to pray. Now, in a past parable that we just went through, we talked about this term watch. And the idea of watch is kind of like when you're on alert. You're the watchman on a wall, and it's your responsibility to see what's going on, to throw up a flare, because, you know, if the enemy's coming, then you tell him. Or the idea, in kind of like the, the sports analogy would be like, you're the player on the court, not the person on the couch watching the game. Right? Like your mentality when you're in the game is very different than you're watching the game on the couch. And this is Jesus saying, don't fall asleep. Don't play this game like you're on the couch. Be alert. Be on watch. Lean forward in your seat. Like, this is an important moment. And he says the application of this important moment is go pray. Okay? I'm in a bad place. This is an important moment. Rise up. Be alert. Watch. Application. Go pray. Now, what we see is we see the earnest disciples saying to Jesus, no matter what, I am following you. No matter what comes, I will die for you. And we see them come out here, and I have to imagine, even because Jesus says the spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak, I have to imagine that they were really wanting to, to be with Jesus in this moment. Right? Like, they were really wanting to overcome. They were really wanting to be the person that could pray with Jesus. And he even leaves the other nine behind and takes kind of his special three, which he does every once in a while, 
And so you're walking away with Jesus being like, okay, this is one of those moments, right? Like they had other moments like this, like the Mount of Transfiguration, where it was like, okay, I'm going to take my special three. I'm going to go up on top of this mountain. And Jesus is transformed into, instead of just a kind of like uh, a man in clothing, looking in appearance, all of his glory and his divinity is shown. And he starts shining as bright as lightning is what it says. And they're sitting there watching this and they hear a booming voice from the sky saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And so they've had these moments where there's like these special moments where the three walk and are set aside. So as they're doing this, it's got to feel like, okay, Jesus only does this when it's a big deal. Point being, I feel like they had to be really desiring to be on, to do, to do well, to have be one of those moments where Jesus goes like, well done after this, like you, you made it through, you did well. And they do so bad, right? Like, they do so badly in this story, they, they fall asleep. In Jesus' desperate moment where he just needs some friends, like, he just needs some people to be on his side in his hardest moment in life, they do so badly, even though they want to do so well. And the way Jesus describes this is, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And all they had to do was pray, and they just fall asleep because their eyelids are heavy. You know, like food, bread, wine, eyelids heavy, hanging out there. It's probably somewhere around 10 or 11 at night, right? And I think what we see in this passage is some people who really will one thing and act another thing. The will that we have as people is our choice to say, this is what I desire to do. This is what I need to do. And then there's the action. And unfortunately, the action doesn't always follow the will. Amen. Right? I mean, not so be it, because I wish it wasn't that way, but true, right? Actually, amen also means truly. So truly, right? Yes, right. And so we see a classic moment in here where the disciples, the spirit is so willing, but the flesh is so weak. And I can't help but totally relate to this, right? I remember this one time where I felt like God was kind of teaching me the lesson of, like, over the course of my journey of walking with Jesus, there's been plenty of moments of humility, uh, you know, where he's just kind of like, shows me how things really are. And uh, this one time, I uh, wanted to go to Tahoe, and I wanted, it, Suki and I were early dating. And so one of Suki's uh, close friends, James Narvaez, myself, and another one of her close friends, Joanne, were going to leave from the Bay Area and go to Tahoe. And we were going to tow my parents' powerboat up there. And we were going to stay at this little place and hang out and like eat good food. And then in the days, we were going to go take the powerboat out on the lake and go wakeboarding and go hang out and this is where Suki would say, and do white people things, <laughs> right? And, enter Suki. Yes. Yes. All of that. And I was really excited about it. Super excited about it. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so we're, I wake up that morning, I'm ready to go. I'm so excited and I'm getting out of bed and I feel like the Lord says, I do not want you to go. Out of nowhere, head off the pillow, pretty clear. And I'm like, no, that's not the Lord. 
right? Instant responses. No, that's not the Lord. And so I sit there, and I'm like laying in bed, and like the fear starts to set in, because I'm like, what if it is? And he's trying to ruin my trip. And come on, let's be honest. Like, that's what's going on with me. It's, gonna, it's like ruining my trip. This sucks. I really have been looking forward to this. Plus, it's like this woman that I'm like starting to like really like, and it's going to be a great time. And so I'm driving over to her house, and I'm praying to the Lord, like, Lord, you have to confirm this for me. Like, you have to give me some kind of confirmation because this is a huge deal. This feels like Gideon going to battle with only 300 people, even though he's facing tens of thousands. Like, you got to give me a fleece moment here. And so I go, like, just, like, let Suki not feel good about the trip either. I show up, and, you know, she says, you know what? I just don't feel good about it. And then we go have this prophetic confirmation moment. We're like, oh, we are meant for each other, you know? And we have one of those. And so I got this whole thing going on in my mind. And so I show up at her house, and, I'm so, and she comes to the door and gets, it like, opens it up. She's like, I'm so excited to go. <laughs> I'm like, dang it. And so I go inside, and I cannot shake this feeling. Like, if you've ever felt this, it is the Holy Spirit all over my back, you know, not allowing me to shake this thing. It is a terrible feeling. And, um, and so I tell her what I feel like is going on, and she goes, oh, yeah, I'm not getting any of that. You know, I'm like, dang it. So we pray together, and we ask that Joanne would be our prophetic confirmation, because she's coming over later that day. And so she comes in, we ask her, she's getting nothing, and so I share with her, and we're sitting there, and I'm like, oh man. So I'm like, okay. And so we drive over to James's place, we're about to go inside, and I sit there, I'm like, guys, this thing is all over me. Like, I cannot shake this thing. Can we just pray for a minute? So we pray, and I go, Lord, I don't know if this is you. I didn't know it was him. I don't know if this is you, but if, if it is, I want to do your will. I want to do your will. And so, Lord, I just ask that you'd give us some kind of sign. Let James, you know, have some kind of confirmation moment or let the, like, let us get a flat tire or let, like, just something, right? Like, throw me a bone here. Amen. So we go inside, we ask James, same thing, nothing. And so we hit the road. We go over to my parents' place. We pick up the boat, and we're driving up to Tahoe, and the thing is all over me, just all over me. And I have this moment where I feel like the Lord gives me the awareness that I'm Jonah. Like, I'm going in the exact opposite direction. Like, he's told me not to go exactly in the direction that I'm going. And so I'm sitting there, and they're laughing, and I'm driving, and I'm just, like, heavy with the reality that I'm too weak to turn this car around. And I knew it. Like, that was exactly what was going on, was I knew it was the Lord, and I'm too weak to turn the car around. And so I turn on some worship music, and I start repenting to the Lord, just like— or well, no, repenting would have been turning the car around. (laughs) But I start asking—yeah— but I start asking for forgiveness and telling him that I'm weak, you know, like, I know I'm weak, and, and I start to have this worshipful moment with the Lord while I drive in exactly the wrong direction. And I look in the rearview mirror, and I see smoke coming out of one of the wheel wells of the boat trailer. And so I pull over to the side of the road, and we all get out, and sure enough, one of the tires on the boat trailer had popped, right at that moment, and it was a dually, so we didn't go squirreling off the ro- road or something like that, but like one of the, the tires had popped on, on the trailer, and Suki and Joanne and James and I are standing by the side of the road. We hadn't told James about the prayer moment, 
and we're staring at it, and Suki and Joanne and I are like, like mouth in the dust, like, is this really happening? And so we call my dad uh, to figure out what to do, and he's like, I literally just changed those tires. But this moment, I've had lots of humbling moments like this, but this moment for me was, I felt so much like Peter. I felt so much like Peter where on the other end of the three denials, he was sitting there saying, I thought I was this strong, and I'm finding out in this moment that I'm this strong. I've had a lot of them. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we really go after discipleship with Jesus, we're going to have moments like this. We're going to have moments where the will is one thing and the action is another. And that's the moment that we find ourselves in here. Now, one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading through this passage is this is called something in the Bible. It's called self-control. In Galatians chapter 5, it talks about this list of things that's, that's called the fruit of the Spirit. And it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's gentleness, and it's self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And self-control, in a nutshell, is the ability to do the things that you want and need to do. It's the ability to do the things that you want to do. You say, I want to do this, and you go and you do that. Now, the crazy thing about this is, if it's a fruit of the Spirit, what that means is, if you don't have the Spirit, you're going to have plenty of moments where you get con confronted with your inability to have self-control. In other words, the inability to do the thing that you want to do. This is kind of a weird thing. Right? Like, why would you have the inability to do the thing that you want to do? It's, a it's kind of a strange dynamic. Like, why would that play out? The interesting thing is that there's, there's things that are right and wrong in the world, right? Like, sometimes you know, hey, I I'm just going to love this person. Like, loving my wife, I know that that's right. Loving a friend, I know that that's right. You know, Sacrificing for the love of Jesus and for his glory, I know that that's right. There's certain categories that are just right, and then there's certain categories that are just wrong. We'll use an easy one. We know that deception is wrong. We know that harming somebody else for your gain is wrong. There's plenty of things that we could put very quickly in the right and the wrong bucket. Now, to make matters more complex, the other thing is that there's another dimension to this. There's things that are pleasurable, and there's things that are painful. And so think about this on like a two-by-two two axis. You have right, you have wrong, you have pleasurable things, and you have painful things. Painful things are like going to the gym for most of us, except for Nancy. <laughs> we just don't like it. We just don't like it. But we do it anyway because it's good pain. You go in there and you're like, it's good for my heart. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. I need to be around for a while. My kids need me. Glory to Jesus. He's going to keep me on this earth for a while for his, for his glory. There's like painful right things, right? Like going to the gym. Why would you need self-control for painful right things? It's actually very obvious, right? We're like, oh yeah, that is like the quadrant. That's the, that's the, that's the section of that thing that, that like we need self-control. We need it, 
right? To go out and let's just say that the Lord says, I want you to preach on Sproul tomorrow. And you're like, oh, obedience is the right thing. It's really good, but I don't like this at all because I don't want to get tomatoes thrown at me or this feels really risky or who wants to do it? You know, like there's plenty of areas that sit in the right but painful, right? Like do the thing that you don't want to do to love fill in the blank and that's usually in the right painful bucket. There's plenty of those. Now, how about the wrong painful bucket? That's kind of weird, right? Like, it's wrong and you don't want to do it. Like, why in the world would you do something that sits in the wrong painful bucket? One word. Deception. Deception. There's something going on inside where you're like, I know this is bad for me. I don't even want to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. It is demonic bondage. And it is deception. So think of alcoholic who's still stuck in it, but later stages where they realize, I really want out of this thing, but I'm going to drink anyway, even though I know on the other side I'm going to hate myself and be miserable. Right? Oftentimes self-hatred fits in this bucket. You know, like I used to have a friend who cut themselves. And it wasn't really like they didn't understand exactly why, but there was this thing where it was like every time they cut themselves, they like hated themselves afterwards and really didn't want to do it, but they did it anyway. So that's kind of like why there. Self-control for that bucket? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know why deception sucks? It's because it's really deceiving. Because you like don't know when you're in deception. That's why deception's so hard. And so oftentimes God says, don't do this thing, and you don't understand maybe why it's bad for you, or you don't understand God's logic in telling you not to do it, but it's like, it's definitely bad, and it's definitely painful, but there's something that draws you to it in a way where you need self-control to overcome even when you don't understand, and you're in bondage, and you need you need to have the, the fruit of the Spirit, the strength of God to overcome in that body. So self-control needed there, self-control needed there. Now, how about if we go into the different quadrants, which would be, I'm going to lose track here. This is going to be really hard. Okay, so we've done, we've done pleasurable things that are good. Oh, we've done the easy ones. And we've done the painful things that are bad. So how about the pleasurable things that are bad? Do we need self-control for this bucket? Oh my gosh. Like, this is the bucket, Right? This is the bucket. Pleasurable things that are bad. It's like, oh man, in the immediate, this is going to be awesome. But it's going to really sting in the long term. How about I just squander everything I own right now and go to Vegas and have an amazing three days. And then what happens in Vegas stays with me when I leave Vegas every time. Every single time. Right? There's this thing of, it's so good in the short run, and then it pays the price and whacks you in the long run, and it, it's brutal. So you need self-control because pleasurable things in the short run are often bad in the long run, and that, by definition, my friends, is called sin. That's why God hates sin, is because it promises pleasure in the short run, and it destroys your life in the long run. That, in, a, in definition, is sin. And those are deceptive because it feels so good up front, it makes me feel nice inside, but it packs a punch down the line. And then the last one is an interesting one. How about pleasurable good things? 
pleasurable good things. Why would you need self-control for pleasurable good things? I'll tell you why. It's called gluttony. What happens with us with pleasurable good things is that we take them out of the category of good and we cruise right through it to the category of bad because we have too much of it. We take a good thing and rather seeing it as a provision of the Lord, we start to see it as a source of life in itself. Food is not food as a gift from God that's enjoyable that he made for the delight of our senses and the nourishment of our body. It is now something that I hang on to for a source of life in and of itself. And so even in this quadrant that you'd say like, okay, this is the freebie quadrant where we just don't need self-control. Can there please be a quadrant where we don't need self-control? Right? But even in this one, it's a quadrant that requires self-control. Self-control is required for everything. For everything. It is a weird superpower, in a sense, because it's one of those things where you're like, well, I feel pretty much in control of myself. And without the Spirit, that is not true. There's evidence everywhere that that is just not true. And so we're in this place right now where the ability to do the things that you want and need to do is something that you need to rely upon God for. And the disciples show us that in this moment in spades. Peter's, pro- Peter's problem is not his earnestness. His earnestness is a beautiful thing. The zeal that he has for the Lord is not the problem. The problem is, is that his zeal has turned into what he thinks is his strength rather than God himself. Having the zeal of the Lord and the humility to know that the strength of the Lord needs to rest with that zeal to empower that energy towards something productive and lasting is the combination that Peter doesn't yet understand that he needs and he's about to find out. So in this whole thing of like having control, it's kind of like having control of your vehicle. Like picture yourself in your car And this is kind of like self-control, except for picture the moment where half of the time your instruments work and half of them don't. You're cruising around life, and you're coming up to a stop sign, and you go, and you stop. And you're like, I've got this thing. Right? And you do it again. You come to a stop sign. It's like, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm doing life pretty well. And then you come up to another one, and you hit the brake, which is your will, saying, I want to stop, but there's something different about this one, and your life cruises right through, and you get T-boned and you realize at those moments that you don't have self-control. This is what we're talking about. Self-control is being able to control the vehicle that is your life. In the big things and in the small things. In the examples that are like the alcoholic, in, in the I want to do the dishes before I go to bed, trivial things. I mean, it's, it's all of the stuff. It's I want to be able to do the action of, of living the life that I choose with my will to do. So the question that I'd have is how in control of you do you feel these days? If it's 100%, I'd say you're probably in deception. (laughs) Right? If the answer is, I can't think of a single place in my life 
where I, I would apply additional self-control. I would invite the Holy Spirit in to give you revelation into what area that is. Because all of us are in some place of we have some control, but we don't have all control. And a large portion of the Christian life is learning how to interact with the Spirit in a way that you're cruising down this spectrum towards more and more and more and more control. And what we find in this passage is, the key of it is, is that it's a fruit of the Spirit. There's a reason why Galatians and this passage line up so beautifully in that Jesus says, hey, you need to watch because temptation is at your door is basically what Jesus says. I can't remember. Let me look at exactly what it says in here. So even though if I fall away from you, I'll never do it. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed. And he says, all right, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So there's this thing called temptation. We just talked about it in a quadrant. It exists a lot of places. And Jesus says, so that you don't fall into temptation. In other words, so that you don't act out of accordance with your own will, watch and pray. In Galatians, it calls it something different, which is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the interesting thing about a fruit or the fruit of the Spirit is it's that something that comes forth naturally from a connection to something, right? Like, that's how fruit works, is if you're an apple tree, it's not like an apple tree. I don't know what it's like to be an apple tree, but, like, let's just go with me. It's not like they're—it's like fighting to not produce oranges, right? It's not like, oh, no, like, I really don't—my will is apples, but oranges are coming out. You know, like, I imagine that that's not the life— of the poor apple tree. Our lives are not supposed to be a civil war moment where it's constantly like, oh no, I hope I don't produce oranges and I hope, you know, I hope apples come out. I hope I can actually do the good things that I want to do. Our life is, is it's not supposed to feel like a daily civil war. And I think somehow we've made that the whole Christian life. There's all this stuff internally that I want to do, but God says it's bad, so I just got to constantly, like, lash myself to, to just not do it. That's not at all what we read biblically in terms of what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. In fact, what it, what it, what it's, what it says in Galatians 5 in relation to walking in the Spirit is this. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is for freedom. What is Freedom. Freedom is having a choice and then being able to follow that choice. That's what freedom is, right? Like, you're empowered to have a choice. You get, a, you get an opinion. And then in that opinion, you are able to do that thing. I want to apply myself to work in a way that when I apply myself to work, it leads to prosperity and abundance. That's what I want to do. Okay, great. I'm going to do that. Somehow Paul thinks that one of the keys to the Christian life is this thing called freedom. This ability to have a choice and then to walk out that choice. I don't know, but if, if we went out to a thousand people on the street and said, would you mind articulating Christianity for me? How many of you think would, that freedom would be the thing that came off the lips? Not that many. 
Now, I think part of that is that there's a misunderstanding of kind of like what freedom looks like. But I think the other part of that is I don't know that the church is oftentimes walking in freedom. And the reason why I would propose to you is because we're like the disciples oftentimes in this story. Not Jesus, or not Peter after he's kind of encountered Jesus and there's restoration and he has the Holy Spirit and there's like a whole post-life for Peter that we can celebrate and he did really well and his life displays a tremendous amount of freedom. But I think what happens is we feel this civil war going on and the thing that we first think to do is I need to fight harder. Is this not exactly what Jackie talked about in her testimony? There's this thing going on. I don't like it. I feel out of control in my life in certain ways. And the first thing that I need to do is fight harder. And what fighting harder looks like means is trying harder not to do the thing that I feel like doing that I know I shouldn't do or, you know, sub it out with whatever piece of the quadrant you want or issue you're thinking about. But it's like, no, 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 no. Now, what we read in this passage is that that's not Jesus' prescription, and we read in Galatians that that's not Paul's prescription or the Holy Spirit's prescription. The prescription is, go pray. The prescription is, rest yourself, abide your life in the Spirit, and the other stuff will take care of itself. That's how freedom comes. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. Increasing in self-control Discipline is a wonderful thing. It's a great safety net. It's not a great place to live your whole life out of. It's a fantastic safety net. If all else fails, discipline is there to catch you. Awesome. I didn't fall through. But it's not a great place to live. I don't want to not cheat on my wife every day because of discipline. I don't want to not cheat on my Lord every day because of discipline. I want to do it because I'm so captured in love with this person that it's my joy and my delight to choose that. And somehow, because discipline is good, we've made it, we've exalted it to a place, to an unhealthy place, where a lot of us just camp out in this this place, this desert land place called discipline. And go like, I guess this is the promised land, or maybe the promised land is on the other side of death, and I'll just hang out here until I get there, and then one day I'll be in heaven and not have to deal with this stuff. And that's true! And we need that someday. But you don't have to hang out in the desert forever. That's not the Christian life. The whole point here is that life in the Spirit is the abundant life. I remember when I came to Cal, and I was living in the place, like, I had just recently kind of met the Lord and just recently started to get my life on track. And the thing that was my, the thing that was pulling me constantly is all my friends still lived in Los Angeles and they were going to UCLA. And so every, you know, every three months or so, I'd just drive my car down there and I'd have a weekend that felt nothing like Jesus. And then I'd drive my car back up (laughs) and I'd start doing my thing again. I mean, this is literally what it looked like. Every three months, I'd cruise down there, and I'd be like, all right, I'm taking a little, like, break from from the Lord. (laughs) And then when I was driving back up, I'd be, you know, confessing and, you know, trying to get myself back into a good place. And and this was kind of like my existence. And then I came to Cal, and I met a Christian who was truly joyful. And I was like, oh, my gosh. 
like it exists. <laughs> it exists. Like, what is going on with that person? And then I found out that they went by this little title called the charismatic. <laughs> meaning, meaning that they believed today in the power of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the Spirit. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then I met another one. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I, this is a thing, I guess. Two, two is like, you know, two is not just one. And, <laughs> and this thing kept happening, and all of them had the same in common. They had an amazing prayer life. They had a prayer life that was one of the central things that they went after. They had a prayer life where they could get alone with God and enjoy an hour with Him and, and prioritize it above other things because they knew that that moment of connecting with the Spirit would be the source of life that they needed to be joyful as they left that place, still trying to live their day in the, in the fullness of the Spirit, but they needed this moment where they stopped and they prayed. All throughout the Gospels, there's these moments where Jesus works a hard day. He's walking around, all this stuff. He's teaching people, dealing with the disciples' foolishness. And then it says at night he went and he left and he went to a high mountain and prayed all night. Talk about self-control, right? Holy smokes. All night? Like a few hours? Two hours? Three hours? All night? He prays all night. And so in this situation, it's not weird for him to say, hey, you're going to need this prayer time to his disciples. Keep alert. Pray for me. Pray for you. Temptation is coming. Pray. Pray. And so I think what happens for us is we think that the remedy is often more self-discipline when the better life is to not get to the safety net moment at all and to have prayer be a central part of everything that you do all the time. Paul calls, Paul calls it pray, pray unceasingly. But establishing a place, this is, this is 101, guys, but, but the funny thing is, is it's so hard. Right? It's so hard. I feel like I'm living right now in a resurgence of my prayer life, and I'm loving it, like so much loving it. It's changing every day, every moment of my day. But in order to do that, I'm having to wake up at 5.45 in the morning. I don't have any more hours in the day. I really don't. They're full of, like, even the subway rides are full of stuff. And so where's it going to come from? Well, I guess I'm going to get up earlier. And the value that we have for something will determine the inconvenience that we're willing to capture that thing. And so... Prayer, I just want to like highlight this for us again. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control is really important. Fruit of the Spirit, prayer, like that's how that works. Plugging into the vine, abiding in Jesus, getting your mind right, getting in this place where your life is plugged into the life source. That's what prayer is. It's, it's not oftentimes what we make it. It's getting before the Lord and being like, okay, God, like, I cannot live without being plugged into you. That's the, almost the start of every prayer time I have. Is God, I am here because I cannot live apart from your abiding life. I've lived with it. 
and I've lived without it, and I have no interest in living that life. And so, God, please use this hour. Show me how to plug into you. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to get life out of this time, but you do, and I follow you. That's the opening of every, every quiet time that I have. And the cool thing is, is that he actually grabs your hand and he teaches you how to pray. I'm telling you, life gets so simple when you're plugged into God. There's this simplification of things. Like, it doesn't mean that the intensity is not there in certain seasons. It doesn't mean that it's like on an all-time high, you know, like that there's, life is going, right? But there's this flow of life that you live in when your prayer life is, is, is robust and abundant and present. And there's seasons where it's great and there's seasons when it's tough. But I just want to stop and I just want to be like, guys, like, if we're talking about doing the Christian life really well, we need to pray. We need to pray a lot. There's no other way. Actually, there is another way, and it sucks. It really sucks. Who's tried the Christian life without prayer or, like, being plugged in? It's so awful. Like, grab somebody whose hand just went up and talk to them about what that feels like. It feels like a constant civil war. That's what it feels like. It feels like a constant civil war. And so the thing that we find out here is that the Christian life done well feels like freedom. And what that freedom is, is this, 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 this reality that Christ has set us free in order to choose and in order to follow that choice. And then it gets even better, which is the next part of Galatians, reads this. Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, there's this interesting thing where God has designed you for love. The interesting thing about love is love is oftentimes doing something that may not be the best thing for you, but is the best thing for somebody else. But you're designed to live in that way. And so the maker says, the definition of freedom for you, because of the way I've designed you, is to be able to choose love with your choice and your will, and then to follow through with that choice and your will in living that actually out. That's what he's defined freedom as. It's the ability to choose in line with your created purpose and then to walk with the strength to be able to do that and to live the abundant life that comes out of that place. That's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. That's why we hear the command of Jesus being, hey, this is my command. This is what I tell you to do. Hey, love one another. And aren't you thankful that he doesn't just give the command and then not give you the strength? Aren't you thankful that he doesn't just say like, okay, work it out really hard down here, but not release the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do it? The whole plan is reveal the design. This is how I've created you. Reveal the command and then provide the strength. Oh yes, I choose in based upon both logic of design as well as obedience to the command. And then the fullness of the strength comes with the Spirit 
to be able to actualize the thing that I now choose to do because, I, because I'm a disciple of Jesus. That's what we're here for. But this whole thing, it hinges on our ability to plug into the life source. The whole thing hinges on our ability to have a prayer life where we can pull life from the life source. It is not pride to go to God and say, I need your life to fuel me every second of every day. That is humility. That is thinking rightly. That is true. That is true. John Piper, I posted this for all the ARC members who saw it on the, on the Facebook group. I couldn't not wait for it to be in my sermon, so I posted it on our Facebook group. Piper said this, people who try to love without relying on God's spirit always wind up trying to fill their own emptiness rather than sharing their fullness. That is so good. That is so good. People who try to love without relying on God's spirit always wind up trying to fill our own emptiness rather than sharing their fullness. This is the invitation that Jesus has for those who want to follow him. It's not easy. There's not moments where prayer doesn't feel dry. There's not moments where you have to like endure and go through, but like it is so worth it. It is so worth it. And so one of the many fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And so what I wanted to do to close is just have us all stand together. And I want to all have us have a moment before the Lord. Would you mind playing something? I want us to all just have a very simple moment before the Lord where there's two things that happen. There's a recognition of need for every second of every day. And the second thing is there's an invitation for the Lord to come and teach you how to pray. If you want to add on a third one where there's a commitment before God that you want to, okay, I'm going to get up early to add an hour, or I'm going to, there's something tangible behind it to say like, okay, yes, this isn't just fluff out there. Like, this is my plan. You can add a third, but those two are the ones that we're going to go after corporately. Declaration of our deep need for Jesus. And then the second one, by the way, it's a joyful declaration. It's a joyful declaration. If we could walk without him, we would. And so this should be the joy of our life when we get before him and we say, oh, I desperately need you. It's like, yes, I desperately need you. And oh, it's joyful. It's a joyful declaration. And then number two is God, just like the disciples asked, teach me how to pray. And then we'll, we'll sing a worship song. Let's pray together. Actually, you know what? I'm just going to give you your own moment with the Lord while Steve just plays a little something in the background. And just go, just do your business with him along those two areas. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this time to be truth and life, to be comfort and strength.